This is Carol Foster of 2 Timothy 2.15 Resources, and I am so excited that you're going to join me today as we study God's Word. The response New Messianic believers give when asked why they initially visited a Messianic congregation is, we knew there had to be more. As we study together, we will begin to see that yes, indeed, there has to be more. For additional study aids to assist you in studying along with us, go to our website, sectim.org. When we left Moshe and the Israelites in our last program, we had completed our study of Shemot, or Exodus, chapter 12, verses 31 through 38. I want to read these verses so that we can remain in context as we continue our study. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord, as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. Pharaoh, after the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn, had not only told all the Israelites to leave Egypt, but he had also let them take all their livestock with them. We also found that the prophecy Yahweh had given to Moshe had come to pass. The Egyptians had indeed been compelled to give the Israelites silver, gold, and clothing before they left the land. This wealth would provide for their future needs as they traveled to the land that Yahweh had promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Yaakov, and Yitzhak. Those that had been in Egypt for the last 430 years and lived as slaves for the last 80 years were now wealthy beyond what they could have ever previously imagined. Not only were they themselves provided for, but they now had the means to accomplish what Yahweh would next call them to do, that is, the building of his tabernacle. We also found that allowing Moshe to take Israel's livestock with him out of Egypt had constituted the release of the last hostage group to Pharaoh's plan to keep the Israelites from leaving Egypt permanently. This had been the last sticking point in the bargaining process that had played back and forth throughout the sequence of plagues. They were mentioned, however, not merely because their presence among the departing Israelites indicated total victory over Pharaoh, but as an indication that the Exodus was indeed going to be a complete immigration from Egypt of an entire people and their economic assets. The Israelites would make use of their small and large cattle, sheep and goats, during their years in the wilderness, especially regarding the sacrificial system, as we will see in later chapters of the book of Shemot. 
The Israelites, now 600,000 strong, and that was only counting the men, were now on a journey that would last 40 years, but would culminate with them entering the Promised Land. If you remember, we did a rough calculation of what the number of just the Israelites would be if each man were married to one wife and each family unit had two children. The number of people would be 1,800,000 people. That's enough people to fill to capacity 20 Rose Bowl stadiums. Now, when you factor in the mixed multitude, the numbers would increase significantly. As we look at verse 38 of Shemot, or Exodus chapter 12, let's read this verse again. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. We discovered that this could be better translated as follows. A huge, ethnically diverse group also went up with them, and with very many cattle, flocks, and herds. We then asked ourselves, to what or to whom was Moshe referring when he wrote of the mixed multitude? He was referring to the many other people who were not descendants of Avraham, Yitzhak, or Yaakov, who later had been renamed by Yahweh to Israel, but had joined the Israelites as they left Egypt. These people had observed the miraculous work of Yahweh, Israel's God, and had become convinced that conversion to him and to live among his people would represent their best hope for the future. With the inclusion of the mixed multitude leaving Egypt with the Israelites, as we just read, we find that there is a parallel statement in this verse that can be related to Ruth, a Moabitess, who had made a declaration to Naomi, her Jewish mother-in-law. We read in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6, that Ruth tells Naomi, Your people will be my people, and your God my God. We also discover that Yeshua uses the same parallel language when addressing his followers. We find this in the book of Yochanan, or John, chapter 20, verse 17. Yeshua is speaking to Mary Magdalene. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. We next read in verse 39 of chapter 12 of Shemot, They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. This verse simply reports the fulfillment portion of the command fulfillment pattern related to the unleavened bread requirements as we previously studied. Bread was, at that time in history, virtually everyone's main food, and even the manna from heaven in the wilderness was to be characterized as bread from heaven. It is therefore natural that the Israelites would take bread dough with them and because of having to leave Egypt in such a hurry, it was only logical that they could not take the time to let it become yeasted properly. Thus they ate the ancient equivalent of hardtack in the early days of their journey immediately following the evening of the Pesach. Any preparation for food for the journey was impossible. 
considering the pressure to leave and because the leftovers of the Pesach meal were not to be kept until morning. In our final section of chapter 12, verses 42 through 51, we read, It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the natives as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. We again find in these verses a reiteration of Yahweh's instructions for the Pesach meal. Remember that many people who were in Egypt were not Israelites. And since other foreigners would attach themselves to Israel, not only in the immediate exodus, but in the future as well. One of the first things that I noticed as I studied this section is the apparent dichotomy of verses 43 and 45, where it states very clearly that no foreigner shall eat of it, referring to the Pesach meal, and verse 48, where it appears that Moshe is now saying that the sojourner may eat the Pesach meal. If we look closer at the text, we see that he now implements a means by which the foreigner can join himself to Israel and celebrate not only the Pesach meal, but also celebrate Yahweh's redemption of his people from bondage in Egypt. I want to tie this into the fact that there were not only Israelites leaving Egypt, but also a mixed multitude who had been converted to the ways of the Israelites and to their God, Yahweh. I find this extremely interesting as it relates to believers today. Here again, Yahweh teaches his people concepts that will help them recognize the sacredness of the body of Messiah as it is offered up on the cross for them as a substitutionary atonement in the future. No stranger may participate in the Pesach feast. Yet, we as Gentiles who believe in Yeshua as the promised Messiah have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel and now are participants in all Yahweh's benefits and promises and are now one new man in Messiah. As we read in Rabbi Shaul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. I'm going to read from the complete Jewish Bible. Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth. Call the uncircumcised by those who, merely because of an operation on their flesh, are called the circumcised, at that time had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. 
You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope and without God. But now you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. For he himself is our shalom. He has made us both one and has broken down the mehitzah or the dividing wall which divided us by destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah, with its command set forth in the form of ordinances. He did this in order to create in union with himself from the two groups a single new humanity, and thus make shalom, and to reconcile to God both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal and thus in himself killing that enmity. Also when he came, he announced as good news, Shalom to you, far off, and shalom to those nearby. News that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. You have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets, with a cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself. In union with him, the whole building is held together, and it is growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. Yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together into a spiritual dwelling place for God. In Messiah, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is only the one new man, Jew and Gentile as one in Messiah and one in the Father. Going back to verse 46 of chapter 12, we see a clear prophetic statement regarding the ultimate Pesach lamb. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. The prohibition against breaking of bones in the Pesach sacrifice is left unexplained. There appears to be nothing about eating a lamb or a goat kid that makes the breaking of its bones intrinsically objectionable and nothing about breaking bones that would pollute the meat in any way. What we do see here is a prophetic picture of Yeshua's future sacrificial death upon the cross, as we can read in Tehillim, or the book of Psalms, chapter 34, verses 17 through 20. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The concern apparently stems rather from Yahweh's desire that the lamb or goat kid adequately symbolize the body of Messiah crucified as we read in Yochanan or John chapter 1 verses 28 through 36. Here, Yochanan clearly and specifically identifies Yeshua as a Pesach lamb, the unblemished, sinless lamb of God. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, 
After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Then we read again in Yochanan, or John, chapter 19, verses 31 through 36. Then the Jews, because it was the first day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, Not a bone of him shall be broken, as we previously read as prophecy in Tehillim, chapter 34, verses 17 through 20. In the last two verses of this chapter, verses 50 and 51, constitute a brief fulfillment notice. They state, Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Without fulfillment notices, readers of any age, but especially those in the ancient world, where the prediction fulfillment and command fulfillment style was so prominent in stories, might wonder if what was prescribed to Moshe and Aaron had actually happened generally throughout the nation. In this case, it certainly did. The Pesach was celebrated, and Israel was thus united as a community of faith within Yahweh's protection and guidance, because they did just what the Lord had commanded Moshe in Iran. Then, on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions, or armies. In other words, the morning after the Passover night was the time that the Israelites grouped together as an army and started on their exodus journey, evening and morning being a single day in the ancient calculation. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, It belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abib you are going to go forth. 
It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. At first glance, it might seem that these verses mix together two unrelated topics. A set of new rules about consecrating and redeeming the firstborn of humans and animals, and a somewhat expanded restatement of the rules for keeping the annual spring feast of unleavened bread, once they dwelt in the promised land. In fact, these two topics were closely related. First, both had special applicability to the spring of the year. That was when the Israelites left Egypt in haste. So, as already noted repeatedly in chapter 12, it was the necessary and proper time for the Unleavened Bread Memorial Week of Observance. What may be less obvious to the average modern reader, however, is that springtime was also the time when most domesticated animals gave birth, particularly the time of lambing and goat kidding. The primary interests of the Israelites, who were small cattle farmers par excellence, Second, a special emphasis of the Israelite religious learning model, which is focused on the transmittal of information from father to firstborn, and most commonly from father to firstborn son. It was assumed that if fathers would faithfully pass on to their firstborn the covenant commitments revealed through Moshe, Others in the family, both later-born sons and also daughters, would also be the beneficiaries. Part of this was simply culture. Fathers and their firstborn children carried special responsibilities for family leadership, which, if exercised faithfully, would include being sure the rest of the family members were both well-informed and warmly encouraged and supported in keeping the terms of the covenant. We then find that the firstborn child occupied a position of honor at the dinner table and played a major role in the Pesach meal. Third, both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Consecration Redemption Observance strongly relate to settling into the Promised Land, which Moshe and the Israelites still assumed would be taking place within a matter of months. Those hearing these words were thinking about the very next spring, when, instead of being on the run in the wilderness, they would be handling the opportunities and responsibilities of springtime in a family-based farming society in the land of Abraham's sojourn. What links all the materials in chapter 13, verses 1-16 through 16 together, is this sense of preparation for inhabiting the land, and not forgetting once there to keep covenant with Yahweh, who had made it possible for his people to have all that they would enjoy in their new land. In verses 11 through 16, we see that Yahweh now tells his people that there is something that they must do once they come to the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. 
Yahweh made a way for the people to redeem their firstborn, the firstborn of the womb, and the firstborn of their livestock. It is called the redemption of the firstborn. This is done by paying to Yahweh the price of the firstborn. Now, we can't put a price on our firstborn child, but it is the idea of redemption that it will be passed down to Messiah as he, being the firstborn of the Father, paid the price for all who believe. Join us next time as we discover how Yahweh led his people by fire and by smoke to the foot of Mount Sinai. Shalom. Thank you for joining us today as we delve into the beautiful truths of God's Word to indeed discover that there has to be more. I pray that the Word applied to your daily life will bring a deeper understanding of His love letter written just to you. Let me remind you that we have additional study aids to assist you with our studies together on our website, sectim.org. May this day fill you with the love of God, joy, and shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken in your life.